Seven billion humans on Earth can't all like the same drink. That's why Circle K has Polar Pop and Froster. Pick your flavors and make that one in seven billion mix just right for you. Polar Pop and Froster, just 79 cents each at Circle K. Limited time only at participating locations. Shut up and sit down. stupid emails this week it's been good it could have been better it will maybe be better next week i don't know anyways i'm talking about what the fuck am i talking about tonight this is why azura can't have her window open while she's on she's listening to the podcast right there because i just busted out fuck in the first one minute there you go now you know anyways um we're talking about novel construction and um, how world building and character development and your plot um, are all part of this. And we've talked about plotting and character development and moving your way through your plot in a way that makes sense to you and makes you productive. Now, the modern novel is constructed in such a way that you're not allowed a lot of exposition. You're not allowed to info dump. Um, you can, but it's considered poor construction. It's considered um, amateurish. And what happens is is that if you drop a 200K novel on an editor's desk, they're not going to read it. They're really not going to read it unless you're Stephen King. And none of you are Stephen King, unless Mr. King is listening, and if he is, what's up, Steve? How the fuck is Maine? I hope you're scaring the shit out of your neighbors. Anyways, here's what happens when you drop 200K in an editor's email, because most often or not, it's going to come in an email these days or an agent's email. They're going to open it up, and if your first 2,000 words doesn't grab them by the balls. They're going to close your document, and you're going to get a form letter rejection that goes something like this. Thank you for submitting to the most amazing agent on earth. I really appreciate your interest in my company. However, you're not a fit for us. I wish you the best in your publishing endeavors. That's what you're going to get in your email. Or if you're crazy and you send them a paper document, you might get it in your post office. That's just what happens. It's what happens. So this is what you do. When you're constructing your novel, you need to grab your reader from minute one. You need to make them so excited about what's happening in your book that you can, that they cannot put it down. Then putting it down makes them mad. 
whoever interrupted their reading. And if you don't do that, if you can't do that for the average reader, you're never going to get published. Because editors and agents and publishers, they do not have time to waste on you. That That's harsh. I'm sorry. Not really. I'm not sorry. They don't have time to waste. Don't waste their time. If you waste their time five, six, seven times and you keep submitting the same work, even if it's different, but it's the same construction, it's the same story over and over and over again, you're wasting their time. And eventually it will come to the point where they won't even open your document. You'll just get a form letter. You've got to be engaging. You've got to bring it from the very first thousand words. From the first 100 words, you've got to drop them into the action, into a moment where they don't know what happened before, but really need to know what happens next. This is why often mysteries and suspense novels begin with the body. They always begin with the body. If they're not beginning with a body, you're wondering who's dying. Well, who's going to die? Is she going to die? Is the person doing the dialogue going to die? Is that, the, is that the main character or is that the victim? That's the victim. And then you're like, oh, is that the victim? Is that the killer? Oh, is that the killer? Because he, that's what you expect in a suspense or in a mystery. You expect a dead body. You expect to see a dead body. And you're like, where's the dead body? Is that the killer? Is that the victim? Oh, is that the hero? Why are we looking at the hero? We don't even know who's dead yet. We need to know who's dead yet. So that's what you have to do when you're writing a mystery or um, a suspense where there's a murder involved. If it's not a suspense where a murder is involved, let's say somebody gets kidnapped. You don't start it with the bad guy planning the kidnapping. You don't start it with somebody getting a ransom note. You start it with your hero or whoever your victim is on the street, and let's get them snatched off the street by some bad guys and thrown into a van. That's how you start, because everybody's like, whoa, what happened? How, who, who did that? And that's the mystery, and, and that's how you move it, move it along, move it along, move it along. You want, exactly, you want a James Bond opening when you're opening up a suspense or an action thriller, or um, but not, not a mystery. Um, mysteries tend to be a little bit more uh, sedate in their pace. So you open up a mystery with um, someone in distress, there's a problem, something happened. Um, A lot of Sherlock Holmes stories start with a client. client showing up at Sherlock Holmes' house or his apartment or whatever you want to call it, his flat, and they tell him what's happened and he infers basically that they're stupid. And then he moves on and he does his thing. Now in Sherlock, the TV series, it most often starts with a body. CSI almost always starts with a body or a crime in motion. And that's what you want when you're doing a suspense or mystery or action where somebody's going to die. If somebody's going to die in your book, throw that body out first thing. Get it out there. Let, let your reader see it. Let your reader be interested in how that body got where it is and who did it and how and why. Because if you don't, you're going to lose your reader from the start. They're not going to be interested. And not everybody is going to read through every single thing they 
buy, or worse yet, and this is probably the worst thing that's happened to book publishing, <laughs> at least from an economics point of view, is the excerpt function on Amazon and on Nook because they can read a sample. And if you don't grab them by the balls during that sample, they're not going to buy your book at all. Just like when you're in a traditional bookstore, the cover art and the blurb on the back, those things draw your reader in. And a lot of times they'll open up the book and read the first chapter sitting there right in the middle of a bookstore. But if you don't grab them at the very beginning, they're going to put that book back on the shelf and pick up somebody else's. And the next time somebody asks them, hey, what are you reading? They're going to talk about somebody else's book and not yours. And they're not going to go their friend and go, oh, hey, you got to read this book. I just read it. It was amazing. Because you didn't draw them in, and you didn't grab them by the balls, and they put your book down, or they deleted your sample, um, the sample off their Kindle, and they never bought your book to begin with. So they're not talking about it. They're not like, oh, God, they didn't go on Goodreads and give you a good review because they didn't bother to fucking read your book. So what you do is you've got to grab them from the very beginning. So in suspense and mystery, drop a body. It's always, oh, what happened? And how'd that body get there? Um, it also depends, um, Jade, on how large the book is. Because most samples on Nook and Amazon are actually just 10% of a book. So if a book is, say, um, 100K, you're going to get 10,000 words. If a book is 200k, you're going to get 20. But if, if but if it's a novella and it's just like 40,000 words, you're only going to get 4,000 words of it. If it's shorter than that, you're only going to get 10% of the entire publishing um, word count, page count. You're going to get 10% on your sample. So if you're writing a short story or you're writing novellas for publication, um, your reader might only get one 1,000, maybe 4,000 words total on your book. So you have to grab them quick. And they have to get to the end of that sample and go, oh, God, I have to know what happens next. And so they have to click that, get book, buy book. If they don't do that, you've missed a sale. So suspense, thriller, action, you want to start with a body, you want to start with a crime. In fantasy, more often than not, you start, um, especially in like in YA fantasy, it starts with a coming of age or a moment where your character goes through an extreme amount of change in a short amount of time. If we take Harry Potter, for example, he went from being the boy who lived in the cupboard to being a wizard. And that's like, boom, right? Your, your character has gone from living in the cupboard, an abused child, who doesn't seem to have any hope of anything better, to literally being a wizard. You got magic, and that's amazing. That you, she draws you, she draws you right into the very beginning. Here you are feeling sorry for Harry Potter because, oh God, his parents died, and he got left on a doorstep, and he lived in the fucking cupboard for eleven years or ten years, ever how you want to add it up. And then all of a sudden. He's a wizard, and he's got a wand, and he gets a beautiful owl, and he goes shopping, and he gets stuff that's just his. And it's the first time that's ever happened. So he's had a shift in his pair, um, his perspective. So that is why, most often or not, when 
writers move into the Harry Potter fandom and they write from the very beginning, Harry buys all the stuff because Harry needs stuff because Harry didn't have stuff and that doesn't make any sense to anybody, right? Because everybody needs stuff. And he gets to live in a freaking castle. You're absolutely right, Azori. And he gets an owl and he gets to make friends for the first time ever and Dudley isn't there to ruin it for him. And it it's just, um, she draws you right in. She draws you right in. Now, I haven't read The Hunger Games, but I did read, um, I did watch the first movie. And what we see of Katniss is that she's moving through um, a very difficult environment. Food is short. Um, hunting's not going well. She has, she's got all this responsibility. And then it, the pick happens, and she sacrifices herself for her sister. She volunteers to be tribute. And this changes the character dynamic. She goes from someone who is trying to find food to survive to someone who's going to have to kill to survive. And that's a huge shift in her character. She's gone from just defending, you know, just trying to provide for her mother and sister to defending her life. And she's being exposed to to wealth and she's being exposed to vast amounts of food when um, there wasn't that opportunity before. And it's almost obscene to see her go from poverty and near starvation to living in that city where she's being trained to be a um, a contestant in, in this game, and all this food's on the table, and it's, it's it's terrible because you know that they have all this food and there's just two people in this house and there are thousands upon thousands of people outside these cities starving to death. So she she brings you right in to the action. She brings you in. And that's what you want. You want to shift your character's perspective in, in fantasy situations where here's the thing you're used to this is what you expect to see and then there's an immediate shift boom and suddenly Katniss is fighting for her life and suddenly Harry Potter is a wizard and that's how you do it that's how you draw your reader in and make them want to read your stuff when it comes to romance the catalyst in a romance novel is the introduction of your characters your hero and your heroine or your hero and your hero or your heroine and your heroine or your hero, your hero and your heroine, whoever they are, ever how you're arranging it, you're moving them to the point where they meet. And when it comes to a romance novel, your novel does not really truly begin until your characters meet, until your love interests, one, two, three, or four, ever how many there are, come together. It's not about sex. It's about an actual physical meeting, and you kind of have to spark off each other, and they have to move through this first scene um, with intent and with flirtation, and you want to build sexual tension. I mean, even if you don't act on it, even if it's a very um, romantic and not like, like a sweet romance where there's no sex, you want to build tension between your characters that's not angry, that's not antagonistic. There are different kinds of... T- tension that you want to build between your characters. A bad guy and a good guy, you want them to be angry with each other, even if they're not expressing it physically. Um. (laughs) You want them to um, present themselves 
as enemies from the very beginning, sometimes it can be a very quiet way, and it draws your reader to these characters in in a, in a new and interesting way, and, and then that they want to know more. Now, with a romance, you want your characters to spark off each other, and you you want that tension to be friendly and sexual and romantic and exciting, like your characters are really excited to meet each other and they're excited for their next meeting, and they don't really want to part, especially like if they're meeting like in a cafe or if they're meeting on the street or they're meeting on a bus or a train, and they they have this ship's passing in the night thing going on, and they don't want to let go of that, but they have to. And then you have them moving back and forth, moving together and moving apart and moving together and moving apart throughout the story. So you create tension and anticipation so that when they finally get to that moment where they're expressing real romantic interest to each other or even just sexual interest, you've developed a situation where your audience is like, hell yeah, get some, or whatever it may be. Mostly for me, it's hell yeah, get some. Because that's why I read romance. I'll put that out there for you. When it comes to erotica, you want to express, um, you want to delve into the physical attraction. You don't want to ignore the emotional impact of two people having sex because um, there is always emotional impact when two people have sex. It's not always good impact. Even if the sex is consensual, it doesn't always have to be good impact. I mean, you know, I used to have this friend, and I swear to you, every single time she had sex, she would come home depressed. And I'm like, is he just not good in bed, or is he not getting you off? Do you think maybe you don't even like men? What is this? Is she just said that the moment, like, during sex, everything was great and fine, but afterwards... She had this uh, shame thing going on because of how she was raised, and she was taught from a very young, very young age that sex was wrong and you weren't supposed to enjoy it, and it's for making babies. Her her parents were Pentecostal, in case that's important. Um, and it took her a long time to get over the shame of actually wanting and enjoying sex. And so, when you incorporate elements. Um, into your characters, think about those things because not everybody is like you. Not everybody is you. So when you're writing your characters, don't always afford them the same attitudes about sex and violence that you have because then you're writing the same person over and over and over again. And before you go into a story, before you construct your novel, and this is actually, novel construction is writing. That's what writing is. It's construction. You are constructing a story. And these are, you've already built all your elements before you go into it. Or if you're a pantser, you know what, I I don't know what that is. I have never been able to understand the pantser uh, situation. I have a cousin who can plot and who can pants, and I um, I can't. I cannot pants. So when I am building a novel, telling a story, I already have all my elements of construction ready. I have my character building. I have my world building. I have um, my plot. I have, actually sometimes I have two or three plots. I, so you have to, 
approach the construction of your novel in a way that's comfortable to you. So if this doesn't really apply to you, um, I I can't really do a radio show on pantsing because I don't even know where that comes from. I don't know how that happens. I don't know. I'm actually very nervous to think about pantsing a project because I would eventually have to stop and do research. Because you can't not, you can't not do research. You're, you're going to have to stop and look up stuff, right? I mean, you're going to have to, unless it's just set in a, one room by itself and you never go anywhere and your characters don't do anything but make food and have sex, which, of course, is is not. A problem, if you can do that, I just can't. I um, I have a plan. Even if sometimes it's just five pieces of, of uh, if I just have a five plot, a five element plot, um, the meeting, the problem, the climax, resolution, you know, the end. I have to have something. I have to have some framework um, for any project I go into because that's just how I how I work. And if I have to stop and research something, um, I often don't finish the project. The more research I have to do in the middle of a project, the less likely it is to be complete. It doesn't mean that my concre- that, that that my plan is concrete. When I move into a novel project, I don't um I haven't locked myself in to events or to characterization. This is just my plan and no plan survives um contact with the enemy, <laughs> so to speak. Uh but and I think even panzers somewhere in the back of their mind have some kind of plan going on like they have some idea where they want to go. I mean, I hope you do. I uh, I hope you know where you're going. I mean, I don't. That makes me deeply uncomfortable. Um, Azor says, "Well, I was self-taught on writing. I hadn't taken any classes. I didn't take classes either. Um, it's just the nature of you. I mean, every writer is different, and no method is perfect for everyone. So you have to do what's comfortable for you, what works for you creatively. Um, create. <laughs> it's not going to come out. What works for you to make yourself a creative person. You can't um, force yourself into somebody else's model, so to speak. So what works for me, what works for Jilly, what works for Azor, what works for Lady Holder, what works for Claire – what works for Senna doesn't always work for everybody else. So what you do and how you do it, how your method is, what you must do as a writer is refine your own method and make it a habit. And that's the difference between, say, a writer author. Because a writer is just someone who writes. He writes every day, can't help themselves. I do it. I write every day. But it wasn't until I made my writing method a habit that I really felt like I was an author because until I made my method a habit until I created my process which was like no other process that I had studied in books or in seminars or in classes um, I rarely ever wrote the end 
because I never got to the end. It went on and on and on and on and on and on and on. <laughs> 500,000 words later, it still wasn't finished. <laughs> Ten notebooks, it's still not done. I mean, it, because I didn't have a method. And so whatever method works for you, figure out your method and stick to it. Make it a habit. And if it works for you, it's fine. And, and don't make any apologi- um Don't apologize for that. Because one of the most irritating things that I see amongst writers is the assumption that what they do is accurate. And if you're not doing it the way they do it, then you're wrong and you're not really a writer. Well, fuck you. That That's not actually how it works. Um, I have been told that uh, my method is too involved, too intense, and boring. That if they had to do what I did, they would be bored out of their mind. And of course they would, because it's not their method, it's mine. And I'm not asking anybody to follow my method. Yeah, you have to have your own. And of course you can read books on constructing a novel and developing characters and developing plot and developing internal motivations and external motivations, and you can determine all of these things in advance, and all of it can change in the midst of writing, and that's perfectly okay. But what's not okay is not accepting responsibility for going off the rails, for for, for going off your plan, whatever your plan may be. If your story meanders, it's your fault. There's no muse. You can't blame your characters. Your characters don't do anything by themselves. They're not real people. They're fictional people on a paper, on a screen, and they're not doing anything without your permission. So when you get on the internet or in the chat room or in Rough Trade or wherever you may be and say, oh, I didn't mean to do this with my character. No. No. Your characters, your story, is a product of your brain. And acknowledging that everything that happens in your story is a product of your brain. Whether it be conscious or unconscious. There's no outside force writing your story for you unless there's some plagiarism involved, okay? That's the truth. There's no outside force acting on your characters but you. You. So you are responsible for everything your character does. And if your character goes off plot, that's your responsibility, so you need to own it. It's not good. It's not bad. It's just what it is. So don't make excuses, it's all a product of you. It's all your brain doing its thing. You know, so there's no there's no muse. Yes, you can be inspired. I am often inspired by the craziest shit. By the way, my mom, we were in Walmart. Was it Wednesday night? We were in Walmart. I don't remember what day it was. It was in, and I hadn't, um, I'd been with her most of the afternoon because we'd gotten our nails done. And um, she wanted me to tell you guys this story because uh, she doesn't want to uh, uh, not entertain her fans. So, okay, so I'm going to tell the story. Um, 
it's totally off topic, but who cares? Okay, so we're we're staying <laughs> we're in Walmart, and I had to go down the deli aisle all the way to the end, and I was like, I'm just going there and get some cheese, so you can stay here if you want. And she says, okay. I didn't even look around to see where she was to to see the area of where. I had left my mom in, in Walmart, and I trot down to the end of the of the big aisle, and I, and I get the cheese, um, and I bring it back, and my mom is still standing where I left her. She says, you never leave me anywhere interesting. You should tell your minions that you left me surrounded by weenies, And I look around, I look around, and I had left her in the hot dog section. So she actually literally was surrounded by weenies. Or I think she said wieners. Anyway, surrounded by weenies. She was surrounded by weenies, and she thought that you guys needed to know that I had left her surrounded by weenies. So there you go. I've I, I told you. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's my mom. Sometimes she'll say something and then she'll be like, but don't tell anybody on Twitter I said that. <laughs> I was like, okay, mama, I won't tell anybody on Twitter you said that. Meanwhile, I'm over here on Twitter just tweeting the fuck out of what she's just said because you just can't help it. I really should, like, change her ringtone to the Oscar Mayer winner song. I really totally should. I, I, I left her in Walmart surrounded by wieners, and that has so many um, terrible, terrible uh, connotations to it that it's just kind of baffling. Um. Anyways, so she wanted me to let you know that I had uh, that I had left her surrounded by weenies. Anyway. I don't think they meant to do her harm. But I definitely should post that weenie pizza thing on her wall. I should definitely do that. Anyways, um, back to to characters and um, how they move in your novel and and how that impacts your construction. When you're a plotter and your characters go off plot, you need to own it. And you need to either accept that you've meandered in a way that does not serve your story Remove that from your work. I'm not saying delete it. I don't delete anything. Sometimes I'll cut stuff out of my of my current work and drop it into another document and just save it in a. I have a cuts file where I um, leave things so that I might need it. I might need it later for something else. I don't know. You, you never know what you're going to need, and so there's no point in out, outright deleting it. Just just take it out. Own that you did it. Go back to your plot and figure out why you did it. Because you did do it for a reason. And if you're blaming your muse or you're blaming your characters, you're not actually identifying the reason that you meandered. And if you have meandered from your plot or your character development and you've done something with your character that you wouldn't normally have done or you didn't plan to do, there's something missing and your brain's letting you know. Your brain's letting you know that something ha- something's wrong here. You've missed something. This isn't... 
you're looking at this the wrong way. You need to twist it and move it around, turn it and see what's going on. A lot of times you'll keep what you meandered and rework your plot, whether you do that in your head or on paper. I think even I think even pantsers kind of plot in their head. They have something going on in their head about the story they're telling, whether they're whether they're going to call it a plot or not. I think one of the most insulting things that I ever heard come out of a writer's mouth was when she told me that she didn't plot. She never would plot, and her books don't have plot. And I'm like, you are the stupidest person on this planet. At the end of the day, when you're finished writing, you have a plot. It's not actually a dirty word, even if it is four letters. It's not. You you have a plot. A plot is a sequence of events. Every book has a plot. Sometimes it's a stupid plot. It doesn't mean it doesn't have one. And you know it's stupid when you see it. You're thinking, what the fuck? You know, TV is a perfect example of this. You have a series that's going along great. Everything's perfect. Everything's awesome. You're really enjoying it. Next thing you know, they've thrown your favorite character off. Team Wolf, I'm talking about you. They've thrown your favorite character off the fucking show. The plot went out the window, and somebody jumped a shark, and you're like, what the fuck happened to the... Wait, what? What happened? Now you know what happens. Your brain is amazing. It's going to pick up things and see things and recognize things that you don't consciously know. It's going to happen in your plot. It's going to happen in your everyday life. It's going to happen when you're driving your car. Your brain is constantly working. It's a very active organ you're going to pick up nuances and you're going to pick up... This is why it's very important to read as a writer because, like Stephen King says, if you're not reading, you do not have the tools to write. One of the things I see in young writers, I think to myself, have you ever even read a book? Because this isn't even how a book is constructed. You don't even have your fucking dialogue and quotes. Did you read a book in the last ten years? Well, what have you been doing? What? What what happened here? Where where are your quotes? Here's some things. If you're not reading, you literally cannot be writing. I think that when you're um writing professionally, if that's the only thing you got going on, which often oddly which often it is not. Most writers do not make a living writing. I don't. I make my living in web construction. I um I don't and think I will ever make a living writing. I really don't. That's just the way it is. I plot while I drive, Carrie. Um, Carrie said that she, that her, that her sister gets mad for her plotting while driving. But I can't turn it off either. I don't know what people do with their brains. I don't know what non-writers do with their brain. Me and my cousin have had a very long discussion about this, and Stan got involved. And Stan is not a writer. He's a he's more of a graphic artist. And um, those two are actually working on a graphic novel together, and I wish them all the luck. Uh, but uh, I don't know what people who don't write do with their brains. What do you think about when you're not talking? 
because I plot books in my head. I've probably, in my lifetime, plotted over a thousand novels in my head that I'll never write because I've already written them in my, in my head. I was going to just do an information dump and just dump all my stories out of my head onto um, a computer because that would be great because I've written hundreds. Hundreds. Lilac says she daydreams. I don't. Or if I do, I daydream about other people, a fictional people, instead of myself. Speaking of, my mom was fussing about Harry and Hermione and Ron again, and she got really, um, she's been watching the movies, and she got all pissed off. And she said, not know how she ended up with that fucking idiot, which is what we all think, right? Um, and she said, I should just write a better ending for that book. <laughs> I said, you totally should. <laughs> you go right ahead. <laughs> I just hope she doesn't end up on AO3 with her own account, writing stories. Because she is a writer. She's just um, not a uh, fiction writer. Uh She's more of a, a family history and um, stuff like that, a historian type thing, historical work, uh, however how you do that, family ancestry stuff. Um, so she's written several books. They're just not fiction. <clears throat> yeah, even even Joanne is like, oh, my bad. <laughs> I really didn't quite think that through. <laughs> so, yeah. Ron Hermione are in therapy, or Hermione's in in, in um, Azkaban for killing him. One of the two. Uh, so, how about the impact of writing in a bubble? I put that on my description of this radio show. And what I mean by that is that if you don't allow... Every writer puts themselves in their work. It's part of the creative process. Your bias, your... Um, belief system, your politics, uh, your sexuality, one way or another is going to end up in the book. I think if anybody bothered to read all of my um, of my stuff on my website, they would get a very clear picture of um, what I think is sexy and what I think is not sexy. And, um, Yeah, I mean, you just can. When you see a large body of somebody's work, it's it's really easy to pick out. <laughs> Claire says, I'm clearly a gay man. Or, I'm clearly a woman who likes to watch men fuck. That's <laughs> really more to the point. But if you look at somebody like Nora Roberts, and you look at um, her work as, as J.D. Robb, you can see her politics in it. I mean, you can definitely see her politics and her social beliefs thread throughout that entire body of work, you know. She she can't really hide it. She really can't. And you can't either. That doesn't mean that you should embrace it. That's because that's because that's how a self insert Jenny Weasley happens. Um just saying. I I do believe that Stephen King um, I don't know if he hates Maine, but I'm pretty sure he thinks Maine might, might be hell on Earth. Yeah. Fucked up things happen. 
in Maine. And Nicholas Sparks. Some women, some woman out there, or man, I don't have a preference. Somebody did Nicholas Sparks so wrong, he'll never get over it. In his next life, he will still be traumatized by whatever this person did to him. In fact, it could have happened in a previous life, for all we know. All I do know is that Nicholas Sparks has been fucked up by somebody or something, and he's never going to get any better. And he wants to make everybody else miserable with him. He definitely writes in the bubble. So, (coughs) when you encase yourself and you write, they tell you in the very beginning, in practically every writing class I've ever been in, and whenever I hear this um, advice, I get fucked up, um, I developed as a writer outside of a writing um, education. So by the time I took a writing class in college, I was already the writer I was going to be. Um, It was already there. I can look at my work when I was 15 or 16, and I see the writer I am today in that work. It's not good stuff. It's it's not even passable stuff. I wouldn't let anybody see it. I wouldn't let my mom see it. I cussed my husband out for looking at the box once. I'm just saying I did. I cussed him out for looking at the box. He didn't even open the box. He just looked at it. Honey, what's this? Don't fucking touch that. Oh, my God. I I totally flipped my shit. What I was saying is that I was already the writer I was going to be by the time I ever took a writing class. So I can't say that um, I uh, I have a writer's education because I don't. I uh, I don't even have a degree in English, <laughs> so I'm not. You know, I can't even say that. But one of the first things they always tell you, I should make a copy of that Batman Mel Preg porn picture and tape it to the box. <laughs> So he won't even look at the box. <laughs> I could have, like, uh, uh, you know that sticky, like, not wallpaper, but, like, you know that stuff you put on shelves? I could have a whole print done of that and just, just like, just do up the whole box with it. Just cover the whole box with that stuff. Anyways, <clears throat> contact paper, yes. I could have a color paper printed up with just that picture everywhere and then just, like, cover my whole box with it and just put... Yeah, maybe I will. Anyways, mm, no, but it was soft. I don't want anybody to see it. It's terrible. But the first piece of writing advice you always get in a writing 101 class is write what you know. This is literally the most annoying piece of advice you can get. It's dumb. It's dumb, and the thing is, is I've said it to people. I have said it to people, and it's and I acknowledge that it's dumb. Oh, Barbara says she wants to see me ordering that in the store. I would definitely order that online because even I have my moments. Just saying. If you're a science fiction writer, you really can't write what you know. You you write fantasy, wizards, and... Exactly. You can't can't always just write what you know. And that piece of advice is um, incomplete. What it should mean, what it should be, what, what you should hear 
from a riding instructor coming into a class for the first time is write with knowledge, not write what you know. Write with knowledge. If you don't know something and you need to know it for your book, you go out and you learn it. If you're writing about dragons, you go out and read all the mythology on dragons, pick up the elements that suit your story, and build your own dragon mythology. That's what you do. You write with knowledge. Even if you have to create the knowledge yourself, like when you're building a world. like It's like <coughs> when I built Ties That Bind, I had to stop and do all these pleasure houses that I had not thought I needed when I did my plot work. And then realized in the midst of writing that first story, that, or that actually it was the first chapter at that point, that I did in fact need this. So I stopped, I worked, and I figured out all these points that I needed. And then when I went back into it, I wrote with knowledge. And that's what you need to do when you're writing a novel. It doesn't have to be something that you know coming into it. But by the end of it, you need to have written your entire novel with knowledge, with um, competency. You've built a world. You need to honor that world. You need to honor your own mythology. You need to honor your own world building. If somebody does something like something in the first chapter, and it's okay, then somebody can do it in the tenth chapter, and it's okay. You have to make the rules of your world and of your novel consistent. And inconsistency is a story is a novel killer. It will kill your story. So you have to be consistent. You have to be knowledgeable. You have to... um, Sometimes you have to give your characters experiences that you've never had, you never will have. You need to try to drop yourself down into that experience, which is why writing can be so very personal and intimate. And you can find you can kind of feel naked. I've um, I, I have a cousin who used to write a blog about writing naked, and she didn't mean that to say that she took off all of her clothes when she wrote, but that when she wrote, that every word that she put down was basically she was stripping off and showing you her soul. She was bearing herself, and and that's what happens when when you write. Um, Anything, fiction-wise. I mean, even even in some cases, nonfiction. If you put your own bias into it, if you if you step into your bubble, then you're not writing um, true true nonfiction. But then history is written by the victors. Perspective is everything. We discussed perspective before, and um, the ability to drop yourself down into your bad guy is just as important as it is to do it to your good guy. Because if you don't understand your bad guy's motivations, he's going to fall flat. And if your antagonist if your antagonist is flat, then your protagonist has nothing to work against. You have to have three-dimensional characters moving through your novel with intent with knowledge, with experience, with no matter what you're writing, whether it be romance, science fiction, fantasy, anything like that. 
Barbara says, my favorite teacher ever told told us that history is written by the winners or paid by the winners. And this is true. Um, our perspective on history is built entirely on what is written by history, um, and the dead don't speak. The dead don't write. Imagine, imagine if we lived in a world where the concentration camps in Germany were, were never discovered. How would that impact our view of World War II, our participation in it? How would it impact how um, our grandparents felt about Germany? before and after the fact. Everything, every event in history impacts, it has impact. What if Rome had never fallen? That's weird, right? Just thinking about that, how that would have, what if Germany had won? World War. Even if the bones of a dead person can tell you how they died, but they can't tell you what they thought, they can't tell you what they felt, they can't tell you their perspective, you can say, okay, this person died of a blunt object blow to the head. But was he the aggressor or was he the victim? Was the killing self-defense? Was it murder? You don't know. When you look at bones, all you know is how the physical ow, how of how they died. They get, they broke their neck. Sometimes if the stab wounds are deep enough, you might have bone nicks. They got stabbed to death. They got shot. If, if the bullet hits a bone, you would know that. If they got hit in the head. But what you don't know is how they got there. If it's a thousand-year-old set of bones, you don't know if they were the aggressor or if they were the victim or if they were part of a plot, if it was a political assassination. So, no, really, when it comes right down to it, when it comes to historical perspective, the dead don't speak. They, They can't tell you their whole story. They can't even begin to tell you their whole story. They can tell you how they ate, sometimes even what they ate. They can tell you how they died, how they lived, if they walked to work, if they were injured as a child. But when it comes to the essence of who they were as a human being, we'll never know unless it was written down in their own hand. This is how I felt. This is why, I, this is why the impact of, of a diary like Anne Frank's diary is, is so immense. You ever read the un the unabridged version of Anne Frank's diary. If you read Anne Frank's diary in junior high, you very likely read an abridged version. 
Did you know that? Um, <clears throat> a lot of school districts would not approve the unabridged version of Anne Frank's diary because it had um, lesbian overtones in it. Anyways, so when you look at a person's diary like Anne Frank uh, and you see her perspective and her childlike innocence be stripped away by the experiences she had living in hiding and the losses she suffered, and then you know you know why it suddenly stops, and it's because her family got found and they all ended up in a concentration camp and she died. That impact of her diary is astounding. But without writing, without some record, we would never have known her thoughts, her spirit, her impressions, her dreams, none of it. You just don't know. So knowing how someone dies physically, um, unless they leave something behind that's written, you'll never even have a glimpse of, of of their mind. So when you when you approach characters, you have to give them a full body of experiences. And sometimes these experiences aren't your and they they shouldn't be your own. You should um spread yourself out, read, learn new things because then you can give your characters more depth and more power. One thing that always bothered me about Harry Potter is his that he didn't even acknowledge to himself that he was abused. And that could be because early on J.K. Rowling, I'm not sure if she retracted this or she's never said it again or she only said it once, was that she didn't consider Harry Potter to be an abused child. I love I love the letters between um the yeah Barbara's talking about the 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 letters between John and Abigail um Adams. Amazing. If you've never read the letters, you should you should read them because they're outstanding. Um it was great. It was great. So your character is as real as you make them and that impacts the construction of your novel. Because if your character is not real on the page. If your character is flat, if your character is not living and breathing and moving in the world that you're creating, you've got a problem. It's a very elemental problem. I love the musical 1776. I love it, Barbara. She's getting me all off topic. I fucking love that. Oh, I fucking love it. It's amazing. If you've never watched 1776, you you owe it to yourself to watch it. It's amazing. It's great. Uh, Anyways, uh, in order for your character to move and live and breathe and love and die and fight and win and, and do all these things within the world that your novel exists in, you have to build a world. And all these elements are part of the construction of your novel. What are the rules of your world? Is it Earth? Is it another planet? Is it a spaceship? 
is it one room in a cabin in the middle of nowhere and your character's never getting out of it and just what what where how and why answer these questions to yourself even if you don't answer them to the reader a lot of times you will know things about your work about your characters that your reader will never know and that's okay that's fine your reader doesn't need to know everything your reader, in fact, should not know everything. Because a lot of it, they're not going to give a shit about. They don't actually care. Some might. Some are weird like that. Some are freaks. I'm, I'm just saying, some people are really, really invested. Like, you know, they would want to know when John Shepard lost his virginity and with who. But you should know. Most of your readers won't care, but you should know. In some stories, yes, I, I I did tell you with who and how John lost his virginity, and, and in some stories I didn't. It just depends on the story and and, it, and, and if it's important. Or not. Is it important? Because sometimes the first sex you have shapes all the sex you have after. Evermore. Ever, ever, ever more. Good or bad. Lady Holder, you're on the air. Hey. Hello. So, I've been taking notes. I'll be listening to this one again. (laughs) I'm not going to lie. So oh, you've been taking notes. Do you have any questions? Actually, um, at this point, no. It's going to take me going back over some of the stuff that I've got written and and looking at it with fresh eyes because um, it's not something that um, I was readily thinking of. And so, you know, now I now that I've got this, um, it's. Stuff that, that I think I was slowly but surely getting to, but you know, it's a it's a case of uh for me writing slowly when I do fan fiction is a different um it's a different experience than writing for for the professional stuff because writing slowly in fan fiction you have a longer period of time sometimes to contemplate, to think about how do you want to do this, what am I doing? Right. Yeah. And the professional stuff, um, it all has to be done all at the same time. It all has to go in, and you you put it together and and you send it off on its way, and you cross your fingers. <laughs> you know. Does anybody in the chat room have any questions? Yeah, I'll wait. I'll wait on that. Um, one of the things that I learned. Um, early on was that uh, a a romance novel is a slice 
somebody's life. It's not mm-hmm. the whole thing. So while it might take me personally six months to a year to develop a strong emotional attachment to somebody I'm fucking, you don't have six months to a year in your novel <laughs> to do that. No, not so much. <laughs> you have that that emotional connection has to happen fast because that's what people want. That's the romance, that mm-hmm. that meeting of of a true, you know. Mm-hmm. They want a fairy tale, and Cinderella fell in love in a night. Yeah. And Snow White apparently but fell in love before while she was unconscious. That takes some talent. That takes some I know, right? talent. Mm-hmm. She's a sleeping beauty got a day in the woods, maybe a little dance. I don't mm-hmm. know if that, yeah, that's the Disney version anyway. Um, yes. Original Tempest asked, "Is there such a thing as being too too detailed with a character? Mills, clothes, loo breaks. When is it too much?" I'm going to stop you right there before close because I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. No one wants to see your characters take a shit. When are clothes important? When they're getting dressed. When's a meal important? When they're sharing it with somebody else. Mm-hmm. Like, your character gets up, they get dressed for work, they put on a suit, fine. Don't tell me who designed the suit. They put on a gray suit, unless they put on a white shirt and a red tie. That's fantastic, Grace. That, that's all I need to know. Well, now, wait a second. Often, Now, wait a second. Here's, no. Well, what? I was just going to say, if, it, if it's one of those where the character is just pretentious enough to... to you know, be flipping through the suits going, you know, do I want the, the you know, Dolce Gabbana? No, I want that today. And I, but no, no I, you don't. I don't like this one. No, you don't, you don't ever want to do that, actually. You don't ever want Damn. to use real designer names. Okay, well then. Um, because it becomes an issue of um, copyright. Copyright? Intellectual property. Oh, oh yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Using brand names can Never be learned. very hinky. You have to be careful. Because okay. Prada actually made money off the sales of the Devil Wears Prada. Well, that figures. Hmm. So you don't want to step on somebody's trademark. Some people don't care. Sometimes you just need to ask permission. and be like, oh, you're fine, whatever, I don't give a fuck. Others care a lot. Hmm. You also want to be careful about disparaging trademarks in your work like you don't want to say American Peril sucks even though they do um <laughs> you don't want to say that Verizon you know hoses you on your phone bill even though that entirely does happen I mean you just don't want to disparage somebody's trademark in your fictional work because it can and will come back to bite you. All it takes is somebody on Amazon to pick your book up and go, hey, Uncle Steve, they said American Peril sucks in this book. Next thing you know, you and your publisher are getting sued for um, disparaging their trademark and damaging their brand. Hmm. So, no, you don't want to use name brands um, if you can avoid it. 
it's just bad business. It's it's just really bad business. Whether you're being complimentary or not, make up names instead. Make up your own designers. Keep it consistent. Um, drop a line where it looks legit, you know, uh, but keep it small because no one honestly cares what your your hero's inseam is. They're far more interested in how big his dick is. <laughs> yes, that's fan fiction, and I'm not making any money off of it, Barbara. Barbara says that I used Armani in what might have been, and that's true, but I would never in a million years do it in a professional project. Because it's just not worth it. Because if you make money off of it and somebody gets mad at you, they're going to want a piece of your money. Understood. Now, what about old defunct brands? If you're doing something. Old defunct brands, it. It just depends on what the trademark is. I think, as a rule, when you're um, doing work professionally, you want to avoid giving anybody an N into your wallet. Okay. Don't let anybody in your wallet. (laughs) Your agent and your editor and your publisher is always going to have a place in your wallet. You don't want to give some asshole who designs shoes in New York a pocket in your wallet, too. When it comes to fan fiction, yeah, you can fuck around with it all you want to. I do. I think it's fun. But I would never do it professionally because I don't want to take that risk. Some writers don't care. I'm not one of those. This is just my personal opinion and my personal advice. Uh, Yeah, I was talking to you, Jimmy. I was. Um, or Stephen King. I wouldn't actually mention Stephen King by name in a professional work. I wouldn't mention any writer without their permission in a professional work because it draws attention to them and they might not appreciate it. Understood. Especially if you're writing um, erotica. Oh, yeah. Porn. If you're writing sexually explicit material, there are plenty of people who would get really bent out of shape with you for including them in your work. Fan fiction or not. But if you're not making any money, they have no money to take. Dickens, Dickens dead. If the writer is dead, um, I wouldn't worry about it. As long as you're not being disparaging and their estate might sue you. Because, like, if you you disparage Doyle... Um, his estate is active, and um, I would never say anything negative about a dead writer, um, except for perhaps, like, you know, Socrates. <laughs> They're not going to come back yes, and buy his, you. But, his estate is a little bit long-term gone. So but I think after Dickens, years, uh, Tolkien, Dickens, Tolkien, oh, yeah. Do- Doyle, um, yeah, be, be careful. Say, so, yeah, you know, your, your, your character's a fan, your character favorite story is um, A Study in Scarlet. That would be fine. But saying that he sucked would not be fine. So, just be careful. I mean, you don't want to call Anne McCaffrey's son a homophobic um, jackass in your book. Even if it's true. Not (laughs) even if it's true. Just saying. Because while you could probably prove he was yeah. homophobic, you probably couldn't prove he was a jackass, and you might get sued. <laughs> Just saying. Yeah. Uh, 
know, be careful. That, that's what I would say, especially mm-hmm. when you're making money. Fan fiction, you don't make any money off of it. You're already violating somebody else's um, property one way or another. No, uh, no, it's not because um, um, it's transformative, so it's so it's actually covered under copyright and, and you're protected. It's a gray area, and you, you can't get in trouble for it legally anymore well, for that there. point of view. But it's not always um, viewed as um, ethical. So so keep that in mind um, and be careful who you tell because some people might not appreciate it. It's true of editors and agents. And even after Fifty Shades of Grey, while there is some give now and they're actually looking at fan fiction writers that have a, a, a large following and saying, hmm, I wonder if we can get them to write original and we could pull their audience in. That, that's just mercenary. It is. And... Um, but they but they think about it, and so they might not be as militant as they used to be about fan fiction writers, especially in the in the wake of so many professional writers coming out and admitting that they write fan fiction one way or another. Uh, but be careful, be very careful. And when you start publishing professionally, um, and you still write fan fiction, be careful. Don't disparage public figures in your Mm -hmm. professional or your fan fiction work. Um, Whenever I created a bad guy, I always used um, a fictional person. I I, I never based it on anybody real. Uh, That's across the board because you don't want to give anybody an opportunity to sue you for defamation. So say you have an asshole boss and you dream about killing him in your book. And you even joke about it. Um, if you do it, make sure your boss is unrecognizable to anybody but you in your book because they can sue you. When you put a real person in your work, they can and have successfully sued writers and gotten your money. They've gotten money out of it. So guard your money. Protect your ass. Your pennies, which it will boil down to pennies, that you make as a writer are your own. So you got to protect them, and don't be a dumbass. And the best way to do that is to not use trademarks to, well, like, you know, some trademarks are so commonplace that they're not even actually, uh, it, it's okay. Like if you say Kleenex to, instead of tissue in a story, that's not a big deal. Just capitalize the K because it, got, um, because it, it is, in fact, trademarked. If you use Starbucks, it's okay. Just don't disparage them. Go Don't say that Starbucks coffee is shit. Just say I'm going to go to the Starbucks down the street or I'm going to go to the McDonald's. Mm-hmm. That's fine. But don't offer a personal opinion, even out of the mouth of your character, about that in a negative way because that kind of crap can come back on you. Um, and you think you're small and it wouldn't matter? Everybody reads something. But you never Everybody know when it will. Somebody. But it also boils down to this. Say you publish an, a novel, and you, you get a contract and you do a book, and your publisher doesn't notice anything out of the ordinary, and it gets published and it doesn't sell much of anything. Say, like, I don't know, maybe a 1,000 copies. Fine, whatever. Um, and everything's cool. And, and, and you do your sequel, and your sequel explodes. And suddenly, for no reason that you can discern and nobody else can even figure out, you're on the damn New York bestsellers list, and in your first book... You've told everybody that Starbucks coffee sucks. Now, because your second book 
is a fucking blockbuster, people are going to come back and buy your first one. Now, that book that sold 1,000 copies has sold 15,000 copies, and some asshole in Seattle going, hey, did you know that she said that Starbucks sucks? What the fuck is this? And the next thing you know, your agent, your editor, your publisher, they're getting a letter from Starbucks, and they're not happy. Whether it happens today or ten years down the road, mind your P's and Q's because it can come back to haunt you. I've seen that happen. (laughs) I actually saw a writer get sued over an article she published in a college newspaper 15 years after she graduated because the college put their papers online. And they all got archived, and she hit the USA Today bestsellers list, and some asshole went through all of her work and found an article, a, a personal opinion piece, where she said something in the article about somebody else that was extremely negative and turned out to be false. She got sued, and the person that she spoke of inappropriately, won, and got $500,000. Good Googling. Yes, you actually can get sued for an opinion if it becomes libelous, or is it the other way around? What's libel and what's um, one spoken and one's verbal? If you say no, it... No, one's spoken and one's written. Right. Well, what is it? Libel and slander. You know, help. Slander. No, it's slander. Those are the two. I don't know. Which, I don't know the different. Right. Of. Yeah. Right. I'd actually have to look yeah. it up. One of the two. She um she did get sued for it because it was written and it was considered slanderous or libelous by the court. And she the first settlement was five hundred thousand dollars. Well, Barbara's saying slander. The first <laughs> author did not have $500,000, and it eventually got knocked down to like 10% of her um, of her net worth. So they're saying libel is written, slander is spoken. So yes, do be careful what you write, because right now no one has anything to sue you for. But if you got money, they will come out of the woodwork to sue you. Pretty much figures. <sighs> yeah, so be careful. She actually accused yes, well. this person of cheating or um, oh, Jesus. stealing or something. Anyway, it came back on you. It can come back on you. So do be careful when you're writing online not to use specifics. This is why I ask you not to bash people, not to bash authors, not to bash each other, um, not to use real names, because it's for your own protection. Azor says, I always said I wouldn't write under my pro, my write pro under my real name because my family would sue me. You know, um, that's actually... Not uncommon. I have known plenty of writers who have been sued by brothers and sisters and cousins for um, writing uh, 
fictionalized versions of events that happen in their family because they expect a a cut of such proceedings. So yes, it can definitely happen. Um, I recommend that you not write about your family. Don't write about ex-boyfriends or ex-girlfriends or ex-lovers or one-night stands that know your real name. <laughs> and if you're going to have a one-night stand, I recommend you use a false name. I'm just saying. If you have no intention yeah. of calling that motherfucker next week, don't give him your real name. He don't need it. This is true. By the you don't way, care either way. Exa- no, he doesn't. A good example of, of a ex who actually has Honestly, a leg to stand on for mental abuse of a character based on them is the poor guy who uh, Derek uh, Hale is based off of in Teen Wolf because the, 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 the showrunners admitted that he based it off his ex. Good God, that guy has got, gotten screwed. But you know, yeah, yeah. Just, just be careful because you you have to protect yourself and your brand and that's why I, I'm really serious about asking you guys not to bash people um because there are people out there if they suspect you have a pot to piss in they will sue you for that pot <laughs> that's terrible to say but it's absolutely true mm-hmm. it is so keep that in mind Mhm. Yeah, there's So don't bash. Don't bash in your work, don't bash on forums, don't bash on um sites. Don't use people's names. It's just not it's just not worth it. I just found um it's going to sound really weird. I just found a note on my desk about one of my stories, but it's written, I think it's actually in my handwriting. That doesn't make any sense. It has it's to be my handwriting. <laughs> I know, it's <not> right? Mine. <laughs> That's so weird. Sometimes if I get sleepy, um, my handwriting can get, like, either it'll be really super precise, like I'm trying to, like, you know, like when you're drunk, you try really hard to do something really accurate. Or, right. Or it's really, really sloppy. And you're like, did I write this? Because <laughs> no one else could have possibly written it. My husband can't even, his is like chicken scratch. I'm not even sure he writes in English. It could be, I don't know, <laughs> alien alien symbols. I don't know. Mm-hmm. That was um, Lady Holder. I don't know what she was doing, but she was bashing something in the background. No, it actually, wasn't me. That's the husband. That's actually oh, the it husband was, and... And what he's doing is um, he likes to do gunsmithing. And so being a supportive and wonderful spouse, I got him a gunsmithing kit for Christmas. And since he's oh. home for the month of April, he's playing with the gunsmithing Cool. Stuff. Cool for him. Yes. There you go. Rather. Yes, until you realize that he's sitting there watching Netflix playing a, a computer game and then futzing with whatever the fuck it is with the um, gunsmithing kit. All on the same desk. You know? Whatever gets him I multitask. Apparently, you know, I multitask, but damn, he's doing good. Yes. Uh, so, yes. Yeah. Anybody have any writing questions? That'd be great. 
Oh, I do. I do recommend that you not write under your real name, um, and I'll tell you why. There, there's a story behind this. I'm not sure if I've ever told this on my radio show, but I will tell you the, st- the story. Um, in the '80s, there was a Harlequin writer, and this is not an urban legend. I um, I know somebody who met this woman um, at a conference, and cause she used to give this talk a lot at conferences about privacy, and um, because this happened to her in real life. Uh, Somebody was reading her work. This man got very attached to her work. Um, she was one of those Harlequin stable writers, so she wrote like I don't know four or five books a year. And they, you know, you, you know how your mom used to get those subscriptions or Harlequins, and you would get like six books in the mail mm-hmm. every month. Yep. I like the life of silhouette desires. Well, she was one of those writers, and she wrote. Um, <clears throat> she was very prolific. She wrote like I don't know thirty or forty novels in ten years. Um, Anyways, she was part of that, and um, this man decided that he was in love with her, and um, this this writer was actually um, wheelchair-bound, and um, he knew this about her. He knew everything about her because she used her real name. He looked her up, and he investigated her, and he hired a private detective, and he decided that he should be in charge of taking care of her because her husband wasn't qualified to do so, and he... Show, he bought he bought a house in her neighborhood. Had it fitted oh, God. for her wheelchair access, called her husband at work and told him that he wasn't qualified to take care of her anymore, so she wasn't going to be living with him anymore. He rushes home. He freaks the fuck out, of course. And he rushes home, and the dude is on their front porch. Oh, hell no. That's why you don't use your real name. That's why you don't use your real name online. I'm just saying. I'm just saying don't. People are crazy. Don't use your real name, especially if you write porn. Be real. You can call it erotica if you want to. That's perfectly fine. My cousin does. Um, She appeared on a national radio show, um, and uh, she got 30 or 40 emails a day from men asking her to marry her, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They read their books. You turn me on. I jack off to your work every day. I mean, it was unreal. It was unreal. And um, that happens a lot to erotica writers. Men buy their work for – well, it happens to men and women both, honestly um, – I've gotten some really inappropriate emails from people in fandom <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> telling me that I turned them on and um that um that that they masturbate to my work and um yeah. nothing makes me more uncomfortable in this world than somebody telling me they jerk off to my work. If you read the sex I write and you jerk off, that's fine, but I don't want to hear about it. Yeah, that's not exactly something I would want to know about either, honestly. I don't need to know when that when that gets people revving. I'm going to ask, what's your favorite part of writing porn? Um, this is true across the board, not just porn. Um, my favorite part of writing um, at all is that I get to um, be in charge. 
That's the that's the bald truth. I get to be in control, and I like that. I get to make all the decisions. I'm in charge. I'm the queen of it, and I really enjoy being in charge. And um, that's right. The master of all I survey. That is absolutely right, and that's my best part. I, I mean, I like other parts too, like you know, uh, writing challenging scenes and accomplishing something, and, and building people, and building worlds, and exploring ideas and concepts. But when it boils right down to it, I like to be in charge. I think the term is control freak, but sure. Uh, if this how if this is how my best friend treats me. Just imagine. <laughs> Excuse me. You notice you didn't deny it either. Barbara says Kira is a top, or she tops from the bottom. I'm actually probably what you would call a switch. Yep. I'm comfortable in both, um, but I'm but I'm also um, a, a masochist, um, and I have no sadistic um, inc- um, inclinations. <clears throat> Although I am a biter, but that's not really about sadism. No, but it feels awful damn good. It isn't about um, hurting somebody else. That 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 isn't what turns me on about biting. But that's an entirely different situation and a different topic altogether. Um, now, see, Barbara said. Well, somebody up here asked a question about transitioning. Um, Barbara asked about that. Do you think transitions are harder than scenes? I don't. Um, I need more clarification on that. By by what you mean? Probably. Is. I think it's the moving from one scene to another. You can write vignettes, which is one of the things that Barbara mentioned much earlier in this, where she can write a scene, but it's moving from one vignette to another and making the 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 the, the change work. Okay. It's that little area where, you know, you've got, to put an example, it's it's the, the scenes where they're walking down the hallways to get to another major scene, you know, from one scene to another. Making that This is actually, um, there, are, there are times when you can do this very smoothly, and there are other times when you can't, and that's when you use a scene, uh, a scene break. If you can't transition your characters from one place to another really easily, like if they have to get in a car and go somewhere, um, or if they have to go home to have the next scene, or if they have to go to work to have the next scene, just do a scene break. But if it's two scenes happening in the same house, you can have them move down the hall in a simple sentence, literally, mm-hmm. and then just start the next scene right there. But if they're having to change locations, you don't want to do that whole thing with them driving in the car and traffic and all that. You just do a scene break, and then with your next scene, open it up with them walking into the work or you know, I hate this, I hate going to work, I hate it. you know, just kind of um, it's a literary the with the first of a, two or three a, sentence. Yeah. It's a, it's a literary you want to set the scene. Of a, of a commercial break? Basically, yes. That, that's what a scene break is. Since, since since you don't want to bore your reader with, with the stupid details of, of, of them driving to work, do a scene break, set the scene with the next, um, after the break, you're going to do a hard break. This is not a line, but actually like a demarcation, like you want to do stars. Um, go to the next scene. Set it up in the first two sentences. Don't draw it out. Don't, like, dedicate a whole paragraph to them. Because um, then you're just actually doing the transition without, on top of doing the scene break. 
Mm-hmm. So to avoid that, you want to um, do a hard scene break and then open up the next scene with a small set. Suzanne's at home and she's having a discussion with her husband and it gets out of hand and it gets they have an argument. And at the end of the argument, you break the scene. You open up the next scene with Suzanne sitting down at her desk at work. Now your reader knows where she is. She's left the house. She's driven to work. She's sat down. Now she has this to deal with, and, and you have your next scene. So you just have your character have an action moment when you first open the scene, and that transitions your reader from one place to another without boring the shit out of them. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes, it does. <laughs> I mean... I mean, you know, you just you just don't want to um, drag it down. So if you can't have a smooth transition from one room to another in the same building, in the same house, they go down the stairs, they go down the hall, just do a really, just just do a break. Just do a hard break and then set your next scene with a sentence or two. But no more than that. You don't want to, you don't want to dedicate a whole paragraph to it. <clears throat> but just having Suzanne set, sit down at her, at her desk at work establishes that she's left the home, she's no longer in the vicinity of her husband who she's had this argument with, and she's moving on to something else, and then we're going to have a new scene. So it sets it without having to um, do a lot of exposition, which you want to avoid because it's boring. <clears throat> now, there, there was another question. Um um, managing and handling the suspension of disbelief. Um, you write for an audience, and that audience is smart. They know their genre. They know what they expect. They know um, they have a set of um, expectations that you have to meet. So if you're writing science fiction, you don't have to explain to them um, – how your spaceship works, because they already have this idea of how that works anyway. So you don't have to dig into that. You don't have to dig into the engineering of your spaceship working. If um, they're a fantasy reader, that you give your character a sword and a horse, they're like, hell yeah, let's go. They don't need to know where he came from. They, they really don't, not yet. They need to know his motivations, yes. Why does he have a sword? Is he going to war? Is he going to save a damsel in distress? Is he going to save a boy? Is he going to save his hot male lover from a gladiator ring? You know, just, you know, mm-hmm. they have their expectations and you have to meet them. It's when you go off the rails that the disbelief becomes, um, when you throw them out of scenario and they and they lose the plot, That that's when you lose your reader. I think that a perfect example of that would be Cowboys and Aliens. You know mm. what to expect in a Western, and you know what to expect in an alien invasion film. And why has it never crossed my mind that aliens might have invaded Victorian England? Because they always invade modern America. This is true. Always, but it wasn't. It wasn't Victorian. It wasn't but the Victorian assumption England. is it was, no, it was no. It was, a, it was an old West town. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter yeah. when they invade, right? Because in Stargate, yeah. the aliens actually invaded ancient Egypt. This is true. But we you don't know, think about were, it they, that way. But alien invasion were, uh, movies uh, often take place today. in modern times. 
So when they put aliens in a cowboy movie, it was like, what the fuck do I do with this? Blank. And people didn't understand it, and they didn't get it, and it wasn't very successful as a result. But what it boils down to is that when you throw something unexpected into an established genre, you're going to have problems. If they invade Victorian England, you get steampunk. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree, Barbara. That's exactly how that worked. That's exactly what happened. What I would say is that know your genre. Respect your readers' expectations. Don't be afraid to surprise them, but don't don't be obscene about it. Like, you know, for instance, um, if you're writing a suspense or a mystery, you know, they expect a dead body. Um, yes, but... In a mystery, what they would not expect would be, like, cannibalism. Like, you could see cannibalism yeah. in a suspense, and no one would blink an eye. But if you throw cannibalism in a cozy mystery, you would be like, what the fuck are you doing? That's not how that works. That's not how any of this works. Because they don't have cannibalism in um, Angel Lansbury... Mysteries. Can you imagine? Actually, I'm com- I'm laughing about Senna's comment. I know, right? I'm I'm gonna totally not talk about that. There's uh, taking a look at Albuquerque and then there's jumping the shark. You know, right? And so one of the ways you you keep your um, your reader in your world is to meet their expectations. And yes, it's okay to surprise them. But you have to be careful. Like I said, you wouldn't throw cannibalism in a cozy mystery. But cannibalism would be perfectly okay in a suspense. Throwing a dead body in the middle of a sweet romance would be kind of shocking. Well, what? That's not what I expected. But if it's just an accident, then you're just going, oh, okay, it was an accident. That's so terrible. Look how sad that was. But if it wasn't, if, if it was a vicious murder in the middle of your sweet romance... Most Your readers will get a little beat, put off. Your readers will be put off because that's not what they expected. That's not what they bought. Yeah. Ah, uh, yeah, warm bodies. Mm. Sharknado. I recently told somebody that I hope the Sharknado ate them. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But yes, when when you break their suspension of disc, the reader will put down the book. They will uh, delete it from their Kindle. They'll get on Amazon or Nook and tell you how terrible it was and be mad and give you one star. It lowers your rating, and people go, oh, well, why should I buy? Oh, look what that reader said. And then they won't buy your book, and then your sales tank. Mm-hmm. So know your reader, know your market, meet expectations, and still be creative at the same time. That's not hard, right? Not really, but yes. <laughs> Don't kill your hero in the middle of your sweet romance. That's a bad idea. I'm going to tell you right now, when you're in the romance market, killing your hero is the worst thing you can do. Bar none. Bar none. I mean that. Do not, Do not kill your hero. Just don't. Wound him all the shit and back, but don't kill him. Uh-huh. Don't. 
Don't write a suspense series where your hair, where your heroine falls in love with somebody and they get married and they have a perfect life and they solve crime together and then kill him off. Because do you know what would happen if J.D. Robb killed Rourke? The level of screaming bloody blue murder would be epic. It would be outrageous. People would lose their fucking minds. And there was a writer who wrote a suspense series, and for the life of me, I can't remember her name, but she killed her protagonist, her main protagonist. She killed her husband. Are we talking about the and one she with actually the lady? spoiled no but before she put the book out, she actually put a spoiler excerpt up on her website for her readers and gave them a password and said, "This is what's going to happen in this book, and if you it's, it's, it's going to be upsetting oh, that's lovely um and readers lost their shit, lost it. Hmm. And um, you should read J.D. Robb because holy shit, how could you not? But um, Rourke is the 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 husband of the protagonist of the series, and her name is Eve, and she marries this hot Irish billionaire, and his name is Rourke, and he is. You know who I keep um, thinking of when he's, I when, when he's I, when an, I think he's an he's an epic badass. Who? You know who I think of when I think of him? Pierce Brosnan, a younger Pierce, but still Pierce. He's he's an animal. He's such a sexy, sexy hot beast. And if she killed him off, I would I would burn all my books. I'd be so mad. I would have to delete my Kindle completely. Oh God, it would be terrible. I'd never be able to read any of them again. So you know, when you um, especially when you establish a series, um, the first book is called Naked in Death. In Death. Oh, it's yeah. called Naked and Destined, and you can't you can't miss it. Um, someone look up a book list for Siri for um Seneca. Seriously, I can't believe she's not read. Um, that's just craziness. Uh, I found a quick reference list. I'm, I'm I'm doing it now. Okay. Yeah. The first book is called Naked and Death. I highly recommend it. Boom. Um, the single best book in this years. series, I think, is probably New York to Dallas. Fucking amazing. It's tw- She's been writing this for 20 years. No. July 95. Yeah. Look at the, look at the numbers. Really? Yeah. It's 2015. That's craziness. She's... That's craziness. Yeah. I just, I just, I just got really old all of a sudden. Fuck you. Did you have to put that out to me? Uh huh. Fuck you too. Look, it's it, it, the e-books are. If you want, the e-books are on Amazon, and the great part is, is they're putting out um, anthology editions, so you can get like the first four mm-hmm. or five books for thirty dollars. So you get like six or seven bucks off. And so I would totally recommend you do that. When you hit when you hit the point where you've actually caught up, she's been publishing these things twice a year for twenty fucking years, and they are amazing. If you have not read 
the In Death series by J.D. Robb, you are totally missing out. And once you've read like two or three books in it, you will totally understand why killing Rourke would be the worst possible thing to ever happen in a piece of fiction. Oh, God. Now, Nora Roberts is a badass because she writes seven Mm -hmm. to eight hours a day, every day. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And she, the level of prolific this woman is is just insane. Yeah. I don't know what he's killing back there, but I don't want to know. I'm kind of worried. Uh, it sounds Oh, I think I have a clue what he's doing. Yeah, well, um, actually, Senate, if you've got access to the library where you are, go to the library, pick up the first couple, you know, and and then just read them that way. Because if you if you hate it, don't spend the money. But if you love it, spend it little by little by little. Yeah, because it's it's definitely worth the money to to read. And it's also, I mean, honestly, Nora is JD Rob Nora Roberts. She's a um, She's one of those writers that would be really cool to to um, to aspire to be, but she's all, she changes too. You know, her stuff does change, and there's 20 years worth of one series and and a set of characters that you can track the changes. Ew. It's an excellent series. I highly recommend it. I really do. I need to sit down and basically spend two weeks and read all those. I just don't want to spend the money. Oh, actually, I think I may go hit up my mother for most of them. I think she's got them. And that's the thing. Her characters grow and change, and they've got new likes and old likes. And um, Sarah's right about how how, uh, your personal politics show up. Um, And naked in death... Was it, it's naked, immortal in death, rapture in death. The whole group of them. There's a. Um, I'll be honest. I was 20 when I read these things first. I had actually I just turned 21, and it made a big impression on a personal thing that I honestly think is an absolutely fantastic idea. We really should go and do it. It would definitely be a shot in the arm to the economy. The problem is certain parts of the. Um, nation would have a screaming fit if they tried. Can you guess? The the legalization of prostitution? Yes, including the the standardization of training and taxing and inspections and all of those. I think it would be great. One of the most interesting things about the J.D. Robb series is the gun ban. Mm Mm-hmm. And in fact, the fact that cops use um, like uh, basically uh, electric weapons, they use like a, it's like mm-hmm. they have a weapon that is capable of stun, but it's also capable of killing. Mm-hmm. It has a lethal setting, and they have legal prostitution, and um, they but also have. And this is one of the things that I I found really interesting was that um, there was legal suicide. Mm-hmm. 
There's also yeah, and, um, a that they call murder unlawful termination because there, in fact, was mm-hmm. a lawful termination and that you could decide to end your life. And if you had all of your ducks in a row and a psychologist signed off on it, the, they would give you pills and you'd go to sleep and not wake mm-hmm. up. I was like, holy mm-hmm. shit, what is this? You know, and um, yep. the cars fly. Oh, yeah, that was, a, that was a cool one. Oh, and they drive themselves. That's another cool one. Although apparently Auto drive, people, car fly. Getting, yeah, apparently some people are getting car sick when, when they're trying out the new Google, you know, driver, um, self-driving cars. Um, robots. They have robots and they have robotic yes. pets. I think it's adorable. Anyway, don't, I don't want to spoil it for you, so I'm not, I'm not going to leave you in details, but it's amazing well, and it's great really- and uh, it's excellent character work. Um, excellent plot work. She is a head hopper, so don't try to be like her. No, no, don't head hop. But the, the thing I was going to say is, even in Naked and Death, which is that first book, there is a depth to the background because you know that she knows far more than we do about stuff that you may not see the reasoning for it for three or four or five books later. You know where it's mentioned, and then, and then it's not. Yeah, mothers are paid to stay home with kids. It's not a great deal, but yeah, it's 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 a fantastic thing. Um, politics show up and they go away, and and you know high profile cases and things echo from one book to another. Where it's it's there's ripples that that stick from you know and and go through the books. So. It is a really, it's a really, I'd hate to see your continuity novel or, or um, book just to, to keep track of all that mess because holy hell, you know. Um, mothers being paid to stay home with, uh, be, to be with their kids, motherhood is actually respected. It's a job. You get paid, you know, um, and it's, it may not be the greatest amount, but you get paid. And that that's that's one of those things that that is actually really really cool. Um, they still got the bad things. They still got you know stuff that is pretty horrible. So. <laughs> and practically every book begins with a murder. Oh yes, cannot. There's the always murder. and they're horrible. There's a things. body within the first chapter every time. Sometimes it's on page one. <laughs> Sometimes it's on page mm-hmm. four. But there's a dead body dropped. Um, in every cha- in the in the first chapter and um it's um all pieces I think of I will say that at times the material is harsh. Mhm. Okay. Oh, um, Eve's past is tragic and mm-hmm. it can be triggery if you have um oh, my. uh I'm going to come out and say this. Eve was sexually abused by her father, and she suppressed most of it, and when it comes out, it's terrible. Um, but she pushes through it, and she's a champion, and she's a, she's, she's, a, she's a survivor, not a victim. And um, it's, uh, every bit of it is, um, is well done. It's, it's, it's never done to appear less horrific than what it is. And sometimes you see writers writing this kind of thing, and it's almost like they want to excite you, and that's terrible. And J.D. Robb never does that. She, 
she doesn't write to facilitate. She writes to, she's getting across information that is absolutely necessary to the growth of the character, but it's not there to, it's not there to stir anybody's juices. And if it does stir your juices, you're twisted. You know, and that's, that's it. Yeah, yeah, you know who the bad guy is sometimes, but, yeah. And sometimes you don't. Sometimes it's a total fucking surprise. Uh-huh. But the relationship uh, between Eve and Rourke is amazing. No, it's not gratuitous. I would never say that about that. It's um, it's it's never – she brings it up practically in every book because she has to write every book like she's meeting a new reader. Mm-hmm. So it's going to come up. You're going to see it because she can't write in a vacuum. No. She has to approach every book like it's the first book a reader is going to pick up. So she can't not give some details to the reader in every book about what this, how this happened and, and why it happened and how Eve responded to this. So it does come up frequently, but it's never gratuitous. It's it's never done um, for titillation. It's... Um, it's it's handled extremely well. JD Robb has never triggered me. That's good. I, I was just gonna say it's it's one of those echoes things where it is something that you know it, it's touched on very lightly in in the first couple books and as things get you know harder and heavier with the, with um events it shows up more and then it it, it it fades out and then it comes back and it's like real life where you know sometimes it's right front and center of what's going on and then the rest of the time it's pushed in the background and every once in a while something will will push a little too close to that that thing that aches and you acknowledge it and you move on you know and work when i when i stopped reading he was still about about sixty percent mystery. There were a lot of things that were were coming clear, um, and Eve loved him to distraction. And they 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 argue and they fight. And oh my God, do they fight! And he will sit there and bend the world into a pretzel for this woman. All right, and that's and as much as she hates, she. I think he he relies on her not to bend the world into a pretzel for him. Yeah, and that's pretty cool. Um, you know, one of the things that that strikes me as funny now, and I don't know if you you grabbed onto it subconsciously or not, the cat, Galahad. Yeah. He's what a Maine Coon, or something similar. He's huge. He's, He's a fluffy. big orange mutt cat. Yes. He's a big orange mutt, a mutt cat. I've always mm-hmm. wanted a big orange cat. Always, yeah. ever since I was little. I had a Russian blue, and I had a Maine Coon that was brown and um, gold and tan. Um, but I've always wanted a big fat orange cat like Garfield. <laughs> no, I'm real happy with my black cats when I can get them. So. Some of the computers are fabulous. Eve's computer at work is never fabulous. It hates her. Well, she keeps 
she keeps hitting and it. And every Indes <laughs> fan has an opinion about who the candy thief is. Mavis. Really? No, I'm not. I'm kidding. No. Honestly, I think it's I Whitney. Think it's... I think it's her commander. He's <laughs> about the only person that can get away with le- legitimately. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking her up. Taking all of her candy. Yes. Well, I don't think it's the janitorial staff. They're all scared of her. So. Mm. Yeah. Yes. She gets serious, and one, she tries to do fingerprints and everything. She gets mad. But, yeah, so uh-huh. it's a great series. I highly recommend it. We're down to um, six minutes. Um, <clears throat> was there any last-minute questions that I didn't get to see that I, that I missed? Epilogues, yes or no? Um, It depends. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I, I mean that, and I, that's not a cop out. I, I mean that. Um, in some instances, you really don't need an epilogue. You need to just let it go, mm-hmm. put it down. You you hit your end, and you're done. But sometimes, if you've written a story, and you want to give your reader a glimpse of what happens to your character, say, 10, 15 years down the road, then, yes, you need a little epilogue. It doesn't have to be short. It could be as long as you want it to be. I mean, it could be 5, 10K, as long as it has mm-hmm. meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, as long as it has purpose in your story. If it's just because you don't want to let go of it, then you need to... Um, Check your vanity, because there is a you know because there is that. I think that the epilogue in Harry Potter is completely unnecessary. Right, you don't need a sequel, an epilogue that takes place a week later. If something happens ten, fifteen years down the road, you want your readers to see. Now, the epilogue in Harry Potter, the it did have purpose. I just don't agree with its purpose. It was to show that <laughs> Harry healed from the war. Mm-hmm. He healed. He made a family. He's putting his kid on the train. It isn't the first kid he put on the train, but it's the one most like him. Mm-hmm. This is the youngest boy, not the oldest boy. So this, is, this isn't the first boy he's put on the train. It's his youngest son. It's the one he named after Dumbledore. Um, which is just so fucking terrible in so many fucking her- terrible ways. I got, anyways. Mm-hmm. Um, so it serves a purpose. It's just not a purpose most of us appreciated. Writing in a bubble. Um, writing in a bubble means that you're not exploring the outside world, and you're giving your characters only the characters, uh, the traits and characterizations of yourself. So you need to broaden your horizon and write with knowledge. Instead of writing what you know, learn more and write with that. <laughs> that's what writing in a bubble means. To me, anyway. That That's just something I've always said to people. Is like, you, know, you need to get out of your bubble. Step out of your box. Get down off your soapbox. Because you can't give your characters your opinions. They have to have their own opinions, their own beliefs, their own faith. Um... Like, you know, I'm perfectly capable of writing a character who is deeply religious. 
I don't often do it, but I have. I mean, I've mm-hmm. written some deeply religious characters in the past. I don't do it lately, but it's not because I can't. It's just because I'm not really interested in doing that right now. But I totally could. So your ability to do that, to step off your, to step off your box, into um, to explore other ideas and faiths and um, situations to flush your to flush your characters out and to make them real. Um, that's what it means to write outside of the bubble. Because when you're in the bubble, you're, you're just writing yourself over and over and over again. That piece of and advice that you're people. told in every writing class, um, just write what you know, ignore that shit. Seriously. Mm-hmm. Learn more. Write with knowledge. There's a big difference. I want to punch your husband. Yes, well, yeah. I'm sorry. I can't I can't. One day, uh, one day I'm going to meet him and hit him really hard in the arm. Just That's okay. My sister does the same thing. I'm Don't so worry short. About it. I probably wouldn't reach much more. <laughs> Don't worry about it. He he's got plenty of area that's squishy and and about the right height. You can you can definitely hit him. I give you permission. I mean, I'm 5'3 and something some change. Does my sister. My sister wears <laughs> 16 heels some days. The platform, okay. you know, the nice, the nice <laughs> yes. Then she steps um, out of them and shrinks. It's ridiculous. I think if you're going to write a sequel, um, don't write an epilogue. An epilogue is the final oh. word in a, sto- in a, in a mm-hmm. story. And if you have a sequel brewing, then that isn't your final word, and you have no business pretending you it is. I will be honest and say I actually wrote an epilogue, and then I realized I actually had a sequel that I could I could write, but it was a little late to take the epilogue back. Um, right. But it was set far yeah it was set far enough down the road that it was like okay well you know this this explains what they're doing there, and then when we pick it up, it's um, it makes sense. The, what I'm stuck on right now is actually the epilogue, and that's it for that particular uh, duo. I'm not doing any more to that thing. So, so really, yeah, I think whatever. as a rule, just don't write epilogues. I don't believe in them. I don't personally like to write them. I have written them because I didn't have a choice, but it isn't my preference. We're down to 18 seconds. You guys have a great weekend. I will probably tweet with my mother tomorrow. All right. Shut up. Can't wait for summer? Old Navy's huge summer sale starts now. All jeans, all tees, all dresses, and all shorts are on sale up to 50% off. Jeans start at $15 for adults, $10 for kids. Shorts from $12 for adults, $7 for kids. Buy online and pick up in-store for free today. All jeans, tees, dresses, and shorts are on sale up to 50% off. Now at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 5-6 to 5-12. Excludes in-store clearance. Active, licensed, men's packaged, and flag tees. 
500 vehicles to sell, 500 ways to save. One month only at Phil Penny Mitsubishi during May Memorial Month. Now through May 31st, we will accept your credit application. A $200 down payment and a $350 a week paycheck can get you a new Mitsubishi. Don't forget, every new vehicle comes with our 10-year unlimited warranty. You can win 5000 with our 5K test drive giveaway. Visit PhilPennyMitsubishi.com. To qualify buyers on a free credit, warranty valid through 10-year ownership on new vehicles only. One entry per household per month. Must be 21 with valid driver's license and insurance. See dealer for details.